The content presented in this podcast is solely for educational purposes and should not be used as medical advice to diagnose, manage, or treat any health conditions. If you or someone you know has a condition or disease discussed in this podcast, we would encourage you to create and implement a care plan specific to your needs under the supervision of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the experts in the field of fetal medicine and should not be interpreted as the standard of care. This episode of the Newsroom is part one of two on the history of RH disease. Hey, Woommates. Welcome to the Newsroom. Hi there. Welcome back. My name is Erin Moise. And I'm Kenneth Moise. And this is our father-daughter podcast. And in this episode of the News Womb, we're going to be beginning our discussion on the history of RH disease. And I think what's so great about this topic is that it's really been your life's work in terms of research and as a clinician. Many of my colleagues and I also would consider you to be an expert in this particular field of fetal medicine. So over the course of the next two episodes, I want to get your expert opinion on this topic. So this first episode, we'll be discussing the early history of this disease and history of prevention. And then in part two, which will air next week, we'll be talking about history of how this disease was diagnosed. And then we'll wrap up with how we treat it once we know you have it. So let's dive in, starting with the history of this disease. So... We're going to probably be focusing mostly on RH disease. Is that correct? Is that my understanding for this specific Yeah, that talk? was the first antigen on the fetal uh, red cell that we discovered was going to cause a problem. And so um, I think we should start with that one. Now, we always can learn a lot from history. I always enjoy reading about what some of our predecessors came up with to get us where we are today. I was once asked what three major accomplishments occurred in the 21st century that helped women's health. And I said, uh, the pap smear, uh, probably the birth control pill. And then for me as a maternal fetal specialist, it would be rhesus immune globulin, which we'll talk about a little bit later today. But let's start with what happened some 80 years ago when Philip Levine in 1939 wrote up a case, I think it was in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, of a 25-year-old woman who was on her second pregnancy, and she delivered a stillborn baby. Didn't know why. She went on to have a postpartum hemorrhage so severe that she required a hysterectomy. And in those days, they weren't cross-matching blood, so they simply got some of dad's blood and gave it to the patient, and she had a major transfusion reaction to dad's blood. And Levine sort of scratched his head and said, maybe the previous pregnancy, their first pregnancy, created something that recognized the dad's blood and caused the problem. And it was a year later that he, Levine, and Landsteiner discovered the RHD antigen on the red blood cell. One year after that, 1941, Levine described the association between the RHD antibody, which he kind of suspected early along in that first case several years earlier, and what was called at the time erythroblastosis fetalis. Okay, hold on. Yeah, pause there. What what is a erythroblastosis fetalis? It's a big word. So that's a Jeopardy question. 
question word. Well, yeah, I, I need to buy a vowel. Um, so erythroblastosis means lots of young red blood cells in the fetal circulation. So again, we didn't know much about fetal disease. We could look at babies. We could look at pathology after they're born. And in the placenta, you find a lot of these what's called nucleated red blood cells. And those are a, an indication that the baby's anemic and trying to make a lot of new blood cells and that was what erythroblastosis was about. So we don't use that anymore. Uh, we like to call this disease hemolytic disease of the fetus and newborn, or HDFN. And so can you tell us a little bit more about how prevalent the disease was at that time when they first discovered the antigen? How common was this disease? Yes, remember, we're dating back to the mid-40s. 1945 was when penicillin came out. But in around that time, 12% of married couples were incompatible. And it's estimated that between five and 10,000 babies died every year from RH disease. So it was a terrible disease, uh, typically getting worse with each subsequent pregnancy. And so if a woman had two or three children, she would start losing babies after, say, the second or third pregnancy, much as in the first case we described. And when you say incompatible, you mean a mismatch of their antigens that would lead to this disease. Is that correct? Right. So, so mom would be Rh negative, which occurs in about 15% of people. And dad would be Rh positive, which is about 85% of at least Caucasians would be Rh positive, and they'd be incompatible. By 1960, about 1 in 167 pregnancies had disease. So it wasn't going away. And at the time, there wasn't much you could do about it. So if you, uh, you know fathered a child that was incompatible with your wife, first pregnancy might do okay, but subsequent pregnancies after the antibodies developed were destined to do very poorly. Okay, so you've given us a good brief history of how this disease was first discovered and a little bit of context for what the disease causes. Let's switch gears and talk about the history of prevention of this disease. So now we know what the disease is, how do we prevent it? So we have to look back to some of the older studies, and many of these were done long before the times of investigation review boards and were done on prisoners. Uh, today, the IRBs and medical schools do not allow you to use prisoners as a population that shouldn't be studied, but in those days they could. So in 1956, there was a study in 39 RH-negative prisoners at the Illinois State Penitentiary, and what they did is they gave... Um, RH positive cells, some of which were the same ABO blood type, like O or B or AB, and some that weren't. And what they found is that the patients that had ABO incompatible blood, so maybe a type O patient got type A, they didn't develop antibodies to RH. So it was thought that perhaps this incompatibility in the ABO blood groups was protective, and people began to think about that as a way of maybe looking at this natural experiment and deciding they could prevent the disease. Now, in 1960, just a few years later, there were two gentlemen, uh, Dr. Frieda, who was a fourth-year OBGYN resident, a resident now, and Dr. Gorman, who was a third-year pathology resident. And they sat on the blood banking committee of Columbia Presbyterian in New York City. And they came up with the idea, maybe we could develop an antibody that if we give it to the mother before she's exposed to the red blood cells, it would keep her from forming her own antibody. And there were some animal experiments at the time that suggested this might work. So an antibody to prevent an antibody? That's right. 
Meanwhile, uh, across the pond, over on the British side, there was another set of investigators who thought, well, we can come up with the same idea. And they studied six policemen, and they called those policemen in London bobbies. And they were given some Rh-positive blood cells, but they had radioactivity on the cells, something you could never do today, to what they call radio-label the cells. And three of the bobbies were given this special concoction of protective antibody. And two days later, half the cells were gone. They were out of circulation. The other three didn't get it, and the cells hung around. And so they said, look, maybe this antibody concoction can actually get rid of the cells in a woman's circulation and prevent them from developing antibody to anti-D. What's interesting about the work these uh, particular London investigators did is that almost all of their six bobbies developed RH antibodies later on. So clearly the concoction was not that effective. So I know you've told me a lot about this particular experiment, but talk a little bit more about the famous Sing Sing prison experiment. So back to our story of Frieda and Gorman, they were in New York. And again, prisoners seemed to be the most likely volunteers, if you would, to do studies. And they went to the New York Department of Corrections and said, we'd like to do some studies on prisoners at the Sing Sing prison in upstate New York. By the way, that prison still exists today. There were no RBs, but the New York Department of Corrections said, you're going to have to sign a bunch of paperwork. And I think each prisoner had to sign eight different times. And you had to be careful what you gave the prisoners. So they gave them ballpoint pens and cigarettes in the reward. This is their compensation for participating in the trial. Right. That was their, 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 their gift. Pens they got. and cigarettes. Pens and That's a lot when you're in prison. <laughs> and they all got a diploma at the end, I hear. So they actually gave them a diploma. There you go. Uh, I had the privilege of talking to Dr. Gorman once, and he told me this amazing story that when they went to the prison, they asked for volunteers, and they had to do blood types on all of them, of course, because they only had to work with the RH negative prisoners. And so when this one prisoner volunteered and said, I'd like to be in a study, my wife lost a baby to RH disease, and so I would like to contribute by doing this. And so they dutifully drew blood from him and typed him, and he was found to be RH negative. Which, if you think about it, means that wasn't his baby that died of RH disease. Yeah, it seems a little uh, suspicious. Because he couldn't have fathered that baby, right? Because he was Because he would have negative. to be RH positive and the mom RH negative. Right. So he, he would have had to have been RH positive, but he wasn't. So Dr. Gorman didn't have the heart to tell him it wasn't his baby, but actually included him in the study. Scandalous. So I, I bet to this day he doesn't know that wasn't his child. So anyway, they went on to um, find nine RH negative prisoners. And four of them were treated with this new anti-D prophylactic preparation of antibody. And then they came back a couple of days later and gave them two cc's of Rh-positive cells. And of the people who got the special antibody, none of them developed new antibody. But of the people who didn't, four out of five uh, did develop their own antibody. So this was their first study to show that what we often call ROGAM, which is rhesus immune globulin, ROGAM is a trade name, in fact worked. Now, we always are told that ROGAM should be given within 72 hours. And what's fascinating about the science of this is that Gorman and Frida went up on Friday to give red blood cells, and they wanted to come back the next day and give the ROGAM shot. But the warden at Sing Sing said, no, we have families visiting, we're worried about prison outbreaks, come back on Monday. So they did. 
and they gave the rogue game shot on Monday. And guess what? Later. No antibodies, 72 hours. So therein lies the science of the 72-hour window of giving Rogam. So the British group actually had a visitor to Gorman and Frieda's shop. And these guys, not knowing any better, gave them a vial of their Rogam. It was actually called Rogam at the time. What a vial is compared to... They were getting two cc's before. How much is a vial? It wasn't very much. Okay. But they took it back to Britain and said, we can make this stuff. And they scooped the Americans and reported their first studies in the British Journal in 1963. And soon after, the U.S. started its big clinical trial in 1965. Uh, a few months later, the British started their trial, all in first-time pregnancies, and lo and behold, this worked. Rhesus immune globulin actually worked and prevented disease. And so in 1968, Rogam uh, was approved not by the FDA, because the FDA didn't even exist at the time. It was approved by the National Institutes of Health. And two years later, in 1970, the American College of OBGYN made it the standard of care in the United States to give one shot of Rogam after every delivery in RH-negative women who gave birth to RH-positive children. In the meantime, the folks in Canada were beginning to say, listen, if Rogam decreases the rate of sensitization or developing antibodies, from what was then 15% down to 1%, could we do better even by giving a shot at seven months, at 28 weeks? Could we take that 1% even lower? So they were doing studies in Canada giving Rogam at 28 weeks in addition to after delivery. And those studies showed that you could take it from 15% to 1% with a postpartum dose, but you could take it down to one-tenth of 1% if you added the antipartum dose. And so you've now described that it, it's working postpartum. They have good studies that show it's working even in that antipartum range. And I know in my education and even in PA school, we learned about prenatal care and you learned about the 28 week, you know, ROGAM, quote unquote, or rhesus immunoglobulin shot. So at what point in time did they decide to make this a standard of care in all prenatal care to give the rhesus immunoglobulin to RH negative women? So in 1981, after the Canadian trials were done, the American College of OBGYN recommended that all RH-negative women be given an antenatal shot of Rogam at about 28 weeks. And again, that would decrease the rate of sensitization down to 0.1%, pretty low. So that became the standard of care. And in the beginning, the college did not require you to repeat the patient's antibody titer. But more recently, just a few years ago, they changed that recommendation so before you give the shot at 28 weeks, they recommended you repeat the titer to be sure the patient didn't get sensitized between her first prenatal visit and the 28-week shot. So that's now the standard of care. Know that antenatal Rogam, if you would, is not the standard across the world. Uh, in many places, it's just being embraced. Like, uh, for instance, just a few years ago in the Netherlands, did they start using rhesus immune globulin in the antenatal period, and that was because of availability. They just didn't have enough of it there. And more recently, several of the European countries have now adopted a way of using free fetal DNA, which we'll talk a little bit about later, to determine if the baby's, in fact, RH positive or negative to decide if the baby needs Rogam. So that's where we are today uh, with the history, a very interesting history, including prisoners and bobbies, 
for the rhesus immune globulin story. British bullbees. This concludes our part one of the history of RH disease. Join us next week as we continue this discussion in part two, which will cover the history of diagnosis and the history of management of RH disease. Thanks for listening, and as Dr. Moise is known to say, more to follow.